This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Public safety reform leader Lenore Anderson argues the victims' rights movement has been used to push a punitive agenda that doesn't work, often at the expense of survivors of crime themselves. Her new book, In Their Names, tells the story of the quest for criminal justice reform and how survivors have been working to join their voices and push for change. She was in town recently for a forum on safety and victims' rights and took the time to share her insights. Joining me now in this recorded interview are Alliance for Safety and Justice founder and president and author of the book, In Their Names, Lenore Anderson. Welcome, Lenore. Thank you for having me. And Seven Hills Neighborhood Houses Trauma Recovery Center coordinator, Sheila Nara. Thank you so much for being here, Sheila. Thank you for having me as well. So I want to start with you, Lenore. America's incarceration rate has fallen, but the United States still locks up a larger share of the population than any other country. How did we get here? Well, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, there was a movement um, actually started in California and spread across the country, the tough on crime movement. And this overlapped with another movement that was emerging at the time, which was the victims' rights movement. Well, those things uh, in the political atmosphere got braided together. And what we saw were politicians of all stripes calling for lengthy sentences tough mandatory incarceration, uh, reduced rights for people in the criminal justice system in the name of protecting victims and helping safety. And that was sort of a political formula that was very effective. Over the course of about 40 years, 32,000 laws were passed to expand victims' rights and toughen the justice system. That's really what happened that got us to be the most incarcerated nation in the world. Can you talk to us more about the history of the victims' rights movement? Sure. Well, you know, in criminal court, I'm a lawyer, and, um, you know, the reality that we don't have a criminal justice system that treats victims very well is true. You know, in criminal court, in many ways, uh, from a legal standpoint, victims are little more than witnesses at best, oftentimes re-traumatized by the process of a criminal uh, court proceeding. And so this idea that victims are either disregarded or treated poorly by the justice system was an accurate reality. But when victims advocates started calling attention to that problem, this sort of nascent law and order effort that had started to pop up across the country that was really looking to bolster the power of the criminal justice system kind of caught on to that same message and really turned that call for supporting victims into a call for more money and power for the justice system. And that's really where things went wrong. There were many other opportunities to help and support victims, getting more help, uh, recovering from crime, uh, getting more access to things like victim assistance, mental health, trauma recovery. But instead, we kind of put a ton of money and power into the justice system and wrapped it up in a bow and sort of sold it as the way to protect victims. But it really hasn't achieved that. Mm. Sheila, uh, Lenore just mentioned that, you know, sometimes victims get re-traumatized by mm-hmm. the criminal justice system. What is what what do you see with that at Seven Hills Neighborhood Houses Trauma Recovery Center? Do you do you hear that from people that you work with there? 
Definitely. There's always some re-traumatization going, especially when there's involvement with city officials or the police officers and things of that nature. In particular, we had a young lady. She's a Caucasian lady in the West End area, which is predominantly African-American. She came into the trauma center one day. She ran in. She said, hey, it was a shooting yesterday, which we were aware of. She said, I was out there. And they, they told me to go in the house, but I felt like something hit my jaw. I tried to explain to them that something hit my jaw. But they said, just go in the house. You had no business out here anyway. So I took her to the ER. Come to find out, she had a bullet lodged in her jaw. Oh, my goodness. The fragments of it was still there. This was like two days later. So we went to city um, down to the uh, federal building to get some paperwork for her. They wouldn't even let her through the metal detector because of that. And they couldn't take it out because it had sat there a few days. So she tried to explain to them that she had been hit. But instead of them finding out, was she okay and everything, it was, you had no business here, actually based on her race and the area being predominantly African-American. So that re-traumatized her to a point where she really shut down. So when she goes through things, of course she comes to the trauma center, when in some cases she needs to call. She's in situations where she needs to call the police. So fear has really set in, and re-traumatization is really bad. Mm. Lenore, we were talking about the history of the victims' rights movement and how it was founded. Can you talk to us about how the feminist movement was kind of became intertwined with the victims' rights movement? And it seems like there were some good things that came out of that in terms of how survivors of rape were treated and, and survivors of domestic violence. But talk to us about how those two movements kind of became intertwined. Sure. There's a lot of um, divergent origins from what became the victims' rights movement in the 80s and 90s. And and one of them was certainly the uh, feminist activism that was rightfully drawing attention to a very serious problem, which is for literally generations, the criminal justice system did not take seriously uh, crimes that happened against women, whether that was domestic violence or rape, sexual assault. These were crimes that were overlooked and disregarded um, chronically. And so when feminist activists drew attention to that, um, they had a wide range of things they were calling for from a policy reform standpoint. And one of them was certainly investment in domestic violence shelters, investment in uh, sexual assault hotlines, um, uh, rape support uh, centers. So the call to provide more real support to victims of these crimes uh, was absolutely successful in, for the first time, getting federal dollars to move into an area where there hadn't really been support at all. Um, there were also a lot of efforts to educate people who work in law enforcement and criminal justice on these types of crimes. Also, very effective efforts to really get the criminal justice system to be more responsive to and care about victims of these crimes. But the part that uh, also happened was uh, sort of that political call to action to have sort of mandatory sentencing and the toughest laws possible and the sort of most stringent laws you could possibly have in response to all kinds of crimes, including those. But what the evidence tells us about what works to stop violent cycles is that those toughest sentences actually don't work. Those sort of mandatory incarceration, extreme punitiveness has actually hurt 
our criminal justice system's ability to ensure that people are prepared for release, able to be integrated back into society, become contributors. The tougher we are, the actually worse off it is for people and for communities to which people return. Um, You know, we've surveyed, uh, you know, in the last 10 years, we've surveyed about 10,000 victims of crime of all survivors of all different types of harm. And we've asked, what do you want from your criminal justice system? And the vast majority will tell you rehabilitation, prevention. Those Mm -hmm. are the priorities above and beyond punishment. Mm -hmm. Sheila, what do you hear? Do you hear do you hear the people who come to your center kind of echo those sentiments? What do you hear from survivors? Yes, I hear from them that they don't want to be repunished. They want to they want to understand what happened to them. They want to get to the root cause of things like why am I this way? You know, and and their answer comes in us being able to reflect to them that they have been traumatized. You know, and when you're traumatized, your brain don't act work as if it would if you've not been traumatized. So at this point, we need to let allow individuals to know that there's help involved and that let their voices be heard because they have messages. They have stories. But when they only have options, they have three options and all of them are negative. What are they going to choose? Mm. You know, we need to put some positive options in place for them that they can see some hope and healing. Lots of times they focus, the system focus on what they've done or what's the problem with them. But do they know based on those problems? circumstances and situations, they've been affected by those. What are those effects? What's bothering you now? What has it caused you to to spiral into? You know, they're caught in a web based on what they have experienced. Mm. You know, and, 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 and it's really hard to get out of that if you don't even have the option to take a look at something you don't even know that's there. Mm. You know? Lenore, talk more with us about how victims are actually left behind by these law and order policies that drove mass incarceration and were, you know, the, the foundation of the victims' rights movement. Sure. Well, first, it's it's really important to um, acknowledge that um, a lot of the calls for victims' rights uh, were driven by stories in the media and in political circles that may have been high-profile crime incidents, but were not very representative about the way in which crime and violence usually happens. So, you know, one of the things that happened in the 80s and 90s was, you know, all of these laws that were passed named after primarily white victims, a lot of uh, white uh, women or children um, who's, you know, s- suffered immensely in terms of horrific crimes and deserve justice like all families. But it's so not representative demographically mm-hmm. of who's most likely to be vulnerable. And so what happens is all the sort of media attention goes to those um, high profile incidents. All these tough laws get put in place. But then for communities who are dealing with repeat victimization, dealing with cycles of violence that, uh, you know, are happening without government involvement or protection, um, there's not resources and attention there. So we're putting the money and the resources and the attention oftentimes in, in the wrong place. So let me just give you a couple of examples. Nine out of 10 victims of crime do not get compensation, do not get victim compensation, despite the fact that we have laws in the books for compensation and victims have 
in law the right to get compensated. Nine out of 10 victims do not get compensated. There's a lot of racial disparities in terms of which victims get denied compensation and which do not. And we see that play out in terms of access to victim assistance as well. The other thing that's really important to know is which crimes get prosecuted and which do not. Um, You know, the story about, um, you know, the survivor trying to talk to a police officer and say, hey, this just happened and sort of getting disregarded. That happens over and over and over again. And so what we see is four out of five victims, we just completed a, a survey that we released in September of last year, four out of five victims report that there was nothing in response to the crime that happened against them. Mm. So there was no effective prosecution. They didn't get a call back. They didn't know what happened in the investigation. So there's a real disregard and sort of a dismissing that's happening where you're not getting a call back. um, You're not getting compensation. You're being returned from the hospital to the same community where you got hurt. You're living with a tremendous amount of uh, fear and apprehension. And there's not really a systematic response to help you. That's part of why support services like trauma recovery centers become so important. I want to remind our listeners we're talking in this recorded interview about the victims' rights movement and criminal justice reform. My guests are Alliance for Safety and Justice founder and president and author of the book In Their Names, Lenore Anderson, and Seven Hills Neighborhood Houses Trauma Recovery Center coordinator, Sheila Narod. Sheila, you yourself are a survivor of crime. Can you share just a little bit of your story and, and your path to healing? My path to healing, my first encounter at this time, I didn't know that I was being neglected or I wasn't being hurt. was when I was a youth and I was a teenager and I was working. I got my summer job. I worked at City Hall with, and I thought I was in a great place. There were leaders there. There were people in power. They were educated and that's what I wanted to do. But I was violated there. Um, we were poor then, so I probably looked at dressed not like some of the women, well, the young ladies looked. So when they cam- counseled me, he befriended me, and he would bring me nice things so that I can work there. But in the midst of that, he violated me. I know I was violated to this day, and I was afraid to tell my mom. But when I did tell her, she went down and told him, but they put me in another office that was into that. Like, you go work over here and stay away from him and— My mom was upset, but, you know, she didn't have a voice herself. She didn't know what to do to fight. And she told me I had to stop working my summer job, so I didn't get to work that year, the rest of the year. But nothing ever became of that. So as I grew along, I instantly lost my power. I was fearful, and I no longer wanted to be around people that I thought were leaders or that I should look up to or in positions that I hoped it to be in growing up. So, um, of course, I um, years went on and I had run-ins with the law myself. So I was at a particular area that was a very high um, drug area inside of a home. And it was a whole lot of violence going on inside of the home. So they demanded us to get out, but no one would let us out of the door. So I jumped out of the third floor window. Oh, my goodness. And so my body was broke up in all kind of pieces. My Both of my legs were broke. Both of my ankles were broke. Only thing wasn't broke was my back and my neck. But I remember, like, um, laying there, and they were just—they wanted to know who was in there, who had the drugs, why I was waiting to get took away in the MLMs. Like, and when I was at the hospital, they always came. Who had drugs? Who was there? Never, like—because I. they said I wasn't going to walk again. And I'm like, 
never the doctors, of course, came to do what they needed to do, but they let those officers and they would tell all they wanted to know, what was I doing there? You had no business there. Tell us who this and that. No concern with me being broke up into pieces like that. So I was really like, and when I got better, I stayed there for three months because I was really bad off. They took me to jail because they said I was at a, you know, I was wrong. I was I did a crime because mm. I was withholding um, evidence or not telling them what they needed to know. But they really didn't have nothing against me. But I didn't know that. But they kept me there saying I needed to tell them something that who pushed me out the window when no one actually pushed me out. I jumped out because I was scared. But they let me go eventually. But I went from getting better, able to walk better to the to the criminal justice center. And they told me to take this plea. I didn't know what a plea was. And the plea was not to stay in jail. It just made me be on probation for six months or something like that. But that was on my record. But never did they show concern about what happened to me or what was going on with me. And I was in Drake Hospital for 90 days. Mm. And they said, I'll never walk again. And, and um, I was just bitter. So after that, I really was bitter, really, really bitter. And I wanted to know more, like, why didn't they help me? So I got into college and I led me to be a social work, which led me to work with various populations and realize that it's, it is happening to other people. And I got to witness it more and more and more. And I said, I need to be on the other side. Yeah. So that's yeah. how I got here. And CSSJ came I never forget Akila and Shakira came to where I was internshiping at Seven Hills Neighborhood House and told me about CSSJ, and I never forget them. They put this movie in, and they were sitting in a park, and, mm. and I was like, "This is it, and that's it." Out mm. to the races, so I will be here the long way. Yeah, Lenore, what does Sheila's story tell you about the? you know, the fault lines in the criminal justice system and, and how it operates. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is um, what I call a hierarchy of harm, which is we have a criminal justice system that um, has a hierarchical, hierarchical lens through which it sees people. And that hierarchy of harm means for the vast majority of people who've been hurt by crime and violence, they're not viewed as victims in the eyes of the justice system. They're not viewed as worthy of protection, consideration, dignity, and support. And this is not a small problem, right? When you look at uh, people who are vulnerable to uh, getting hurt by crime and violence, it's we're talking about young people. We're talking about people in low-income communities, communities of color, people with disabilities, immigrant communities, yes. LGBTQ communities, people with old criminal records. That's who, uh, if the criminal justice system is sending a signal that it doesn't care, then that increases the vulnerability of those very populations to being hurt by crime and violence. And so this is what, you know, I think... Um, you know, is is really a core challenge is that we have a justice system that has never been very good at figuring out how to protect all people equally. Mm. So what does meaningful reform for trauma survivors look like, Lenore? And then I'll, I'll, I'll ask you that same question, Sheila, after Lenore answers. But what do you think meaningful reform looks like? 
Sure. Well, um, there's definitely reason for hope. We live in a in a time where we're seeing so many community leaders build the solutions that can solve our safety crisis and actually recover, help people recover from trauma at the same time. Um, you know, with Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice and Alliance for Safety and Justice, we've been advocating to build trauma recovery centers in communities all over the country. There used to be only one. Now there's 44 trauma recovery centers all over the country. And these are one-stop shop, uh, comprehensive support services for victims, in particular survivors who've been overlooked by our traditional criminal justice system. So that's one exciting solution that's building up across the country. There's also a real need to rebalance our investments. The criminal justice system is not going to be the best way to build up strong communities and build safety in communities. So we need to take some of that money and put that money into violence prevention programs, Mm -hmm. mental health crisis assistance programs, reentry programs. If we could really equip communities with those kinds of capacities at the neighborhood level, we'd go so much further to stop that cycle of crime than we would putting all the money in the back end in these uh, tough sentences. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the examples of what um, is exciting right now. You know, we call it a new safety movement that's building (laughs) across the country. And it's community-led, and it's about healing trauma. Mm. Sheila, what do you think? What What are some of the most meaningful reforms that could happen that trauma survivors really want to see? Everything Lenora said and more. But definitely allow survivors and victims to be heard and be a part of. Also, more community involvement. And it needs to start where individuals need to know what's going on and know that they have options Allow them to have more options than they have. Allow them to be a part of it. Mainly listen to what they said and allow them to share with you what they're feeling behind what they're being. You know, we got to get, we have to gain some trust back. You know what I'm saying? I think that it's very important that we allow um, victims and survivors to be in the forefront of what's going on when the decision making is being, and also being part of leadership with some of the decisions of what they need. They can put it together better than anyone because it's happened with them. You know what I'm saying? Take their ideas and not just hear them. Put them into play. Don't just hear what they have to say. They need to be listened to. And people that have these systems and have the opportunity to put these things in places, they need to get out on the ground and get go out there. Walk this community. Look and see. Ask questions. And you they'll learn so much more. Because I remember going to Survivor Speak and speaking to some legislators, and he actually was honest enough to say, I've been in positions where I can say I made wrong decisions Mm. just based on what you guys shared with me. If I would have knew this then, I would have made some different decisions. Mm. And I mean, that was like, he really meant that because he didn't know. Mm -hmm. And they don't know. They got to come out of them office. They got to get in the ground. They got to engage with us and allow us to have the opportunity to share because we know what's happening in our life more than them. I've been talking with Alliance for Safety and Justice founder and president and author of the book, In Their Names, Lenore Anderson, and Seven Hills Neighborhood House's Trauma Recovery Center coordinator, Sheila Nared. Thank you both so much for your time today. 
Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asiya Johnson. Technical director is Derek Smith. If you miss our program live, you can subscribe to Cincinnati Edition wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lucy May. Thank you so much for listening.